yeah, we have the big spectacle. We have the screens. We have the thing when we hit our donation goal. There's going to be the big like fireworks or whatever for doing the mo- that's the moment. So the difference between us and everybody else is that we also care about the moments between the moments. All right, Sean, do me a favor. Go to our document and look at the video that I posted to the Instagram to the Instagram link. So okay. I found this this weekend. I was sitting in the bath. Just I chilling. just watched this I, right before the pod. I watched this. Yeah. Does that? Okay. So I was sitting in the bath, just chilling, watching Instagram. You ever sit in the bath? You ever like bath Sundays? You just kind of sit for a few minutes. I have kids, dude. My bath is very different than yours now. Well, that's true. So I just, <laughs> it was Sunday bath, just chilling, going through Instagram. And I got this video of this lady. Uh, it's a woman from Germany. I think she, she's German and uh, a guy. And they're running together on a 200 meter race at the Paralympics. She's blind and he's the guide runner. And they win the race and they start hugging and she's all crying. Is that the coolest video you've seen today or what? This I didn't actually understand what was happening. It just looks like they're racing against each other. Uh, I, no. I wouldn't have even known what this was if you hadn't said anything. So she's blind. And she's must not be fully blind. And what they do in the Paralympics is uh, she's like, if you're, like if you're blindfold not, on. yeah, they put a blindfold on everyone because some people might be legally blind and they could still kind of see a little bit. And so what they do is they put this blindfold on everyone. And then these women are, are like really fast women. So like another woman can't be their guide because there's just, you know, faster men who could keep up. And so it's, they're all teamed up with a guy who helps their foot into the blocks and puts their hand in the right place and then has to run alongside them stride for stride. And they'll say like, all right, you're in second now. Or like you're in first. Like, all right, we, we're on the straightaway. Like pretty cool stuff. And it seems really rewarding. I'm going to do this. So I've contacted um, <laughs> so, a track coach. So you ha- saw who- this video. You got emotional. You know, the bath bomb started hitting. And uh, the eyes started getting misty. And you just decided, this is what I'm born to do. I'm going to be a guide runner. Or you want somebody to guide you. Which one are you trying to do? So, huh. Uh, so here's the deal. I am now, I'm still fast enough that I am as fast as some of these blind women. I'm not as fast as the blind men, but I can keep up with the women a little bit. And I I probably have five more years where I can keep up with them. And so I can't, I'm not good enough to go to the Olympics. I never was. And particularly now as I get older, I'm not good enough. This is my shot. This is my way to get into the Olympics is to be a guide runner for the, for a blind lady. This Somebody called you out on Twitter for this. They go, he did it. The perfect Sam backhanded compliment. Because <laughs> you were like, backhand complimenting like, myself. Yeah, kind of yourself. I don't know. The, the, the whole sport. Because you were like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as fast as I used to be. And I'm still fast enough with this, to keep up with an elite blind woman. <laughs> no, that wasn't my point. I'm just saying, like, it's just a fact. There, like this lady, she ran 23 seconds. I can run 23 right now. I'm not, there's no, there's no, like, not even stretching. Is, no. And, the, and, and this isn't even like, uh, the, this is like awesome. I think it's awesome. I think it'd be way more fun. I'm not like making fun of these dude, people. You this have to be a good sick. person to do this at the Paralympics. You're not a good enough person, dude. We, we, you were too rough around the edges. Me? You're not, yeah. You're going to get canceled before the race. You're going to say dude, something. I tip like 50% <laughs> when I go out to eat. I'm a great guy. Yeah. That's what you got to ask yourself. Where's that coming from? What, what are you trying to cover up with these 50% tips? <laughs> I'm a good dude, man. Dude, I, I'm I, glad I, you I could do this. I'm glad you brought up the Olympics. So, um, probably don't even know this. The winter Olympics are going on right now. Half the people I listen learned to this, that like yesterday. 
they're going on right now. The ratings are like the lowest it's ever been. All right, and then I forgot to tell you this, but this is the most important thing. Uh, I can't believe we didn't talk about this earlier, to be honest with you. Because if you're listening to this and you like what you're hearing right now, and you haven't gone and subscribed to the My First Million podcast wherever you get your podcast, then that's the thing you've got to do. There's nothing more important than doing that right now. And don't do it because I said to do it. Do it because you want to do it. Do it because that's who you are. Hey, quick break to talk about our sponsor today. We're talking about HubSpot and their new AI-powered service hub. Okay, so what is service hub? Basically, every customer today wants to be talked to in a personalized way. And before, that required tons of human agents. But now, with AI, you could do that in a personalized way with fewer humans involved. And so you don't have to scale up your team in order to deliver personalized chat and service. So check out HubSpot's new service hub to use their AI tools to give better support to your customers. That's what they want and that's what they deserve. So visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn how this all new solution can help you deliver customer service with AI to your customers. Uh, Winter Olympics in general are like, you know, less popular than the, the normal Olympics. Um, some people are super into it. My buddy Trevor, uh, he's my roommate. He loves the Olympics. Like the Olympics would come around. He's like, clear the schedule 24 seven. I'm just watching whatever's on. And like, I kind of got into it with him. I, I do that too, by the way, but so only for it. the summer. No, no, right, no winter. Summer Olympics. winter aren't real. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you should say that when you're in the Winter Olympics uh, guide bobsled team. Just be like, can't wait to do this for a real sport. Um, so, so I was, so I, I was watching the Super Bowl. Then, like after the Super Bowl, it just like immediately auto cut to the Winter Olympics, and um, and I was watching somebody do like the toboggan, and I just thought of a very controversial take. This take was too spicy for Twitter. I didn't even dare put it on Twitter because I was like, I'm gonna get so much heat for this. The toboggan is the person who lays on the sled. I thought that was a luge. Okay, maybe I maybe it was a bobsled. Maybe it was a luge. Maybe it's a toboggan. It was, a, was it like no. one person? It was one person. They were running. I think the difference they're pushing is, the is thing. that yeah, the difference is is that one they go face first, and one they go like on their back, on their back, on their butt, legs right. first. So completely irrelevant to what I'm saying. The yes, one of those was happening, and then. I thought I so so our buddy Nick tweeted this out during the Super Bowl because Nick likes to just like stir the pot on Twitter. That's like his character on Twitter. And he was like, watching sports are a complete waste of time. You know what I'm doing right now? I'm working on my business. That's how you get ahead. When everybody's zigging, you zag. And he's he doing something like that. And then by the way, earlier that day, he was texting us photos of him partying. So yeah, dude, he's parties all the time. Like this guy's not like <laughs> Nick lives like the the, uh, the most charmed life. He's like, oh, you know, I'm tired of playing golf, so I'm gonna now relax, <laughs> right? Like, guy's got like, I guess self storage is a pretty hands off business. So you know, he's yeah, got a lot oh of time on his hands. But he likes to tweet stuff to stir up the pot, and uh, so people started, you know, fighting about it. Here's my take. That's kind of like that, that I just didn't want to get into on Twitter. The Olympics are an example of how to waste your life. <laughs> so here's, here's the spicy take. So I, I'll explain. I, I understand. That's, that's harsh. But, I, uh, but here's, the, here's the take. I once was uh, listening to an interview with this guy, Max Levchin. Max Levchin created PayPal, which is a pretty important like internet invention, ability to send money to each other on the internet. So he creates PayPal. PayPal becomes a huge success. And for his next act, do you remember the company that he started next? It was called Slide, I think. Slide. And uh, describe what Slide nothing. did for the people. 
it was advertising technology or games. I forget, but it didn't no, work it was that like well. Mini, mini little mini apps on top of MySpace and Facebook. So it'd be like that's right. Slideshow. Yeah, like you want to put up a slideshow of like photos with some music on it. You slide. You want to throw sheep at your friend. You slide. Slide makes all these apps that are like you know poke your friend. Oh, we created an app called Double Poke. It's better than but a they poke. made money through ads. I think it was so it was ultimately almost like it was just like a way to get lots of impressions and then. Ad. Ultimately, the whole thing lost money. It didn't make any money. It, they they ended up selling to Google mostly because of Max. I think I think it was Google that bought them. Um, yeah. So they whatever it didn't it didn't end up working. But the point was they they go Max, you did PayPal, then you had Slide, which which had like explosive growth on top of these really fast growing social networks, but ultimately kind of fizzled out. You know, like what have you learned? And he said one thing that like has stuck with me. It stuck with me, which means I, I must have been guilty of it many times for this to stick with me this, this hard. He goes, well, here's what I learned with slide. You can spend, be careful because you can spend your whole life optimizing for nothing. And, um, and he's like, you can optimize anything to the, to the infinity degree. He's like, so we come out with super poke or whatever their apps were at the time. Like, you know, super poke, it's like better than a poke. And then, all of a sudden I have these brilliant engineers from Stanford and whoever else and their job every day was to increase the poke per user ratio by this much to get clicks up, to get it, you know, to get, earn an extra three cents per click. And ultimately we spent years just optimizing the viral coefficient of how I can get super yeah, poke to spread across my space. It's like, and his, his message was be careful because it doesn't matter how smart you are. Anything can be optimized to like infinity. So, Pick wisely, like, you know, the, the same brain power and energy went into building PayPal as went into building these silly apps on slide. And I've been like, you know, that's been my thing, my, my, my sort of mountain to die on, which is like project you selection are, is everything. But you are so but, wrong. When you're but this is the Olympics. the Olympics. This is the Olympics. This person who's who's running and then diving into this toboggan. They basically to me, they got tricked by society. Society basically told them, hey, you know what? Devote your whole life, give up everything basically to train every day to become the best in the world at this arbitrary thing that we've made fun of. You're not, are you going to make a lot of money from it? No. Are you going to, uh, you know, develop these like, you know, amazing other aspects of your personality in your life? No, you're going to go super single minded to turn yourself into a human weapon of doing this one random thing, sliding your body in a tube down this chute for 40 seconds. And your job is to get it from 40 seconds to, you know, to 39.98 seconds. That is your life. And then, hey, when it's over, uh, good luck. Just go figure out the rest of life now that you're, you, you've peaked at age 26 and then, you know, go, go ahead and figure the rest of life out. So I think the Olympics are an example of optimizing your life on the dumbest shit. Okay, go. All right, I'm going to make an argument to say why you are entirely incorrect <laughs> and I've got wonderful examples. These Correct? Are at the top of, oh, I thought you were going to tell Sorry, me I'm an idiot. Wrong. Oh, Incorrect. Okay. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and here's why sports represents so much more. There's only basically two things that transcend language, religion, and culture. It's basically art and sports. I think those are the only two things, maybe family, but that's about it. And so what sports represents is so much more than just optimizing the, the seconds. Not only is it about like the um, being disciplined and all that and how those are good qualities, but it's, it's, it's about culture. So think about this in the 19th, uh, I think it was 33 Olympics or 32 Olympics in Berlin, it was in it was in uh, Berlin and and Hitler was in the stands doing a Zeke Hal and they were 
still getting there at that point. They just started like, you know, messing around with the Jews and getting rid of them. Jesse Owens wins the long jump and hundred meter dash when Hitler's saying like, well, the Aryan race is the best race and anything, you know, outside of that is inferior. And Jesse Owens sticks it to him. Another example is this woman named um, Catherine Switzer. You probably don't know who she is, but have you ever seen this famous picture of this woman running a marathon and there's a priest pushing her out of the road? No. So, okay. So her name's <laughs> Catherine Switzer. Look it up. So look up uh, marathon woman push and you'll see this famous picture. So for a long time, women were not allowed to run marathons. So there was no such thing as, first of all, women weren't even in uh, the Olympics and they thought that like, oh, women are just too weak to run. And this woman came along and uh, I don't remember what year it was. I think it was the seventies and she starts running this marathon and there's this famous picture of this guy pushing her out of the street. And that like signals to all women like, no, F this, you could do it. All right, you got this. And then you got guys like this guy who you can't see all the way. His name's Steve Prefontaine. Steve Prefontaine, he ran in the 1960, uh, 1972 Olympics, I believe, in uh, uh, Munich. Uh, Munich. And what happened at that Olympics was basically... Uh, a bunch of terrorists took over and they killed a bunch of Israeli athletes. Have you ever heard about this? They took over this helicopter. They kidnapped these Israeli athletes, these wrestlers. They threw them in the helicopter. The Israeli army tried to like capture them and it blew up and it, and, and it ruined the whole Olympics. And you know what they said the next day? They go, F this. We got to go compete. We, this is what we have to do. We got to compete. We got to bring this together. And Steve Prefontaine, this guy who's on my wall, he was at the Olympics and he said these amazing quotes like to give anything less than your best is a sacrifice the gift. He eventually inspired this guy, Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman, to go start a company that they called Nike. And Steve Prefontaine was their first athlete. And this is all because of the Olympics. And this is all because of sport. And the Olympics happen just every four years. And it's one way to like bring a beginning and an end to the last trailing four years of training and preparing and discipline. And it accumulates in this thing. This is incredibly essential. It represents race relations, women's rights. Fuck, go look at the... Um, Every year at the Olympics, they do the, the, the procession where your country comes in. They've got this thing called, um, I forget what they call it, but it's for people who are going through war and who don't have a country. So, for example, I believe in uh, London, I think it was like uh, Sudan or, or the Congo Republic. I forget one of those countries was not considered a country by like they're going through civil war. And so they just said, hey, we're just going to create a refugee country. You now have your own country. Or when Taiwan or Hong Kong are going through their issues, it's a huge deal that for the Olympics that they announced, well, are they going to have their own country or are they not? Or a, uh, recently, a Kenyan swimmer was in the first ever Summer Olympics swimming. This is beyond sports. This is a really big deal. That's my plea. That's why I think this is actually awesome. Tell me how you really feel. That was good, right? <laughs> that was good. Um, just tell me one thing. Who's the who's the who's the greatest um, luge uh, competitor of all time? Can you just name him? Um, everything that I just said was only for the <laughs> Summer Olympics. The Winter Olympics are fake. <laughs> If you need a judge under sport, it's probably not that real of a sport. That's why track and field, swimming, and all those like races, that's why they're like real sports. Yeah, so everything I said, no, 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 that, 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 it's only every four years. So, so I'm mostly the- just messing around also. I like, I like watching the Olympics in general. I think it's cool. Obviously, I think it's cool if people like excel in things. That's, that's awesome. My point is, I think that there's like, uh, you know, like, for example, if my kid was like had the potential, if you told me right now, hey, your kid has the potential to be the greatest, you know, like at uh, whatever, um, the greatest third person in the bobsled in uh, in the country. But here's what you have to do every day, every weekend for the, you know, the, the, the next 20 years of their life 
is going to go into optimizing their body and mind to be able to do this, which essentially yeah. is what goes into like becoming an Olympian, right? You're trying to become the best in the world at an arbitrary game that was made up. And you have to sacrifice a huge amount of your life and focus and attention and energy and talents. You decide to invest into this. And the thing you get out is character building life lessons. Um, and yeah, the you, other you thing you get, get that from the boy is, scouts, you know, potentially a moment of fame when, if you won, if you actually did achieve the thing and you have the, you know, sort of the, the, the knowing inside your heart that, that this was, this was good. So like, you know, would I rather be, you know, Steve Prefontaine, this, you know, this good looking mustached runner guy, or would I rather have been Phil Knight? I'd rather be Phil Knight. I think actually he's the perfect example. What did Prefontaine get out of, you know, Nike, nothing. And so he actually, know, uh, Where's he now, right? He, he, he died three years into founding the company from a drinking driving accident. So yeah, oh, you're, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Joke's yeah, not so, so funny now. <laughs> it, it didn't work out. <laughs> Wait, so he was actually a co-founder of Nike or he just inspired them? Um, he, 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 was a, he was in their crew and he was their first sponsored athlete and like their right. fifth or 10th employee or something like that. And um, if you ask Phil Knight, who, you know, what's, who's Nike's mentor or sorry, who's right. Nike's mascot, they'll say it's Prefontaine. Yeah. So anyways, my point is, uh, I think that there's a lot of things that are fun and they're best done as hobbies versus trying to become the best in the world at it. Right. Uh, I can play, you know, call of duty and have a bunch of fun with my friends. Um, I can even play, you know, the competitive side of things just because I like to scratch that itch and I play a couple hours a week. But once I try to become the best in the world at it, the level of sort of sacrifice and over indexing on that thing. And Hey, you could do it. You could over index on anything. You can try to become the fastest typer in the world. You could try to become the best photographer of Brown leaves in the world. And you know, like you could do all those things. So choose carefully, choose which one you want, what you, what yeah, you really it, want to it, go into. It's like people who dedicate their lives to be an average D three basketball player. It's like, it could work. You could, you could, you could go to the NBA, but like odds are the papers or the writings on the, on the wall, like it, it's probably not going to happen. So maybe you should right. actually like study a real major instead of basket weaving or communications. Right. And if you enjoy it, fantastic. If you're enjoying every step of the way, fantastic. But a lot of things in my experience are most enjoyable when done as hobbies versus when done with the competitive pursuit of becoming the absolute best in the world at it. Uh, are the guy you used to work out of his, his dojo, he used to tell me that I was like, oh, yeah, I really like this. So I might start a business around it. He goes, oh, yeah. The, the, Dave Grossbach. He goes, easiest way to fuck up a hobby is turn it into a job. And I remember yeah. just hearing that and being like, huh, that's interesting. I actually never really thought about that. Yeah, actually, there are some things that are really fun as hobbies that become really unfun as jobs. Right. It's like working at a Cinnabon. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I love eating Cinnabon. Uh, working at a Cinnabon, smelling a Cinnabon, eating free Cinnabon anytime you want. Now it's not so fun. Dude, that's how I feel about business sometimes. So like whenever I, I go to my friend, Nick Ray always hosts these meetup, these meetups and I'm his friend. So I go and he's like, say your name and what you do for work. And I'm like, I don't want to say what I do. I'm sick of talking about work. That's all I ever talk about is business. Like I don't want to talk about that shit ever again. Right. So uh, I feel you. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing, 
If you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives. I thought it's pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's do some other stuff. Um, okay, I don't know where we want to go. We can go ideas or we can just shoot the shit. That's all right. we have, I think. Well, I have a couple things. I didn't actually put them on this list yet. But uh, okay, so I'll give you a quick idea. Um, I was in a pitch meeting. So this founder was pitching me his, his company and uh, he was just like screen sharing. So he was showing me a product demo and it was like a, it's like a data analytics uh, tool. And he was like, yeah, so like, check this out. If I go to Excel and then he like, he just opens up the browser. I never seen this before. He goes, he just opened up the browser. He goes, sheets.new, enter. And then he opened up a Google sheet, like a blank spreadsheet. And I go, I go, wait, wait, wait what's just, what was that? And he goes, oh yeah, I'll t-. he goes, I'll show you later because <laughs> he was because I was he was so annoyed with me just going on tangents about every random thing he was doing. Like he wanted me to show me his product, not the fact that you could type sheets.new and save myself. Like I fucking Google, I Google Same. Google Drive, then I get to Drive, Same. then I click New, then I go down the menu, then I find spreadsheet, then I click New spreadsheet, then I get to a sheet. It's like this like annoying thing I do six times a day, and um, and so just seeing this was like, well, that's awesome, and it reminded me that there's a whole company out there called GoLinks. Have you ever heard of GoLinks? No. What is that? So so I saw this in a, um, or when I was working at Twitch, the kind of like whoever, the I don't even know his job title, like VP of everything, the, the kind of that number two guy at Twitch, um, my boss, this guy, Dan, he was like, he's like, God, we have so many documents in this company. And now I just have bookmarks and tabs just with like all these docs open at all times in this company. He's like, and if I ever want to look up like, oh, the annual plan, it takes me like five minutes every time I want to find it. He goes, I don't know why we don't just use GoLinks. And what GoLinks does is it lets you set up a thing that's like plan, Or like, you know, you can just basically type in like a human readable link and you can anchor it to any doc. And so let's say, you know, you that's anchored to the 2021 doc. Oh, now it's 2022. Cool. We just swap the link out. We just, sorry, we, we like, we can still always type go slash you know, uh, annual plan or go slash plan and go slash plan will now take us to the 2022 doc. And I saw this and I was like, wow, this is actually so useful to just be able to quickly find and like revoke access properly to, to different documents. And so, um, so I really like this. Most people haven't heard of this. And I think it's a very expensive tool. I think it's like a pretty like enterprisey tool. I see at the top here, they raised a 27 million, $27 million series a. Okay. So doing pretty well, obviously. So I think somebody could build, this is like a very simple product. I think somebody could build a GoLinks for like the startup level world. More I like got you, bro. Indie hackers. I just, I just invested in one. Oh, really? What is it? Yes. So I Not told you setup, about it too. I swear. I, I told you about it. Uh, oh, it's really? called Nira. And oh, I'm in this too. I'm in this too. Oh, I, I, so that's the same thing, right? So no, Nira, so this is, this is slightly different. I don't think they do the, the shortcuts to the links. Maybe this is a feature they should add. What they are doing, what Nira is doing is we all, all companies have all these docs and then people get fired or they move teams or whatever, but people still have access. It's like, oh yeah, I still got this link. It just opens up the, like the numbers for the, for the company or like, yeah, this contractor we hired still has access to all of our files, but like who the heck can go audit and keep up and scrub the access for this thing. That's like, it's like a very big problem. Like your company's most sensitive data is all in the cloud. And then the cloud like access is shared amongst like so many people and there's no central place to see who sees what. And so Nira's building that they're building the, who has access to what? Yeah. But I think the link thing is a feature. 
Maybe, yeah, maybe it is a feature. I'm saying I think it's a feature that can be standalone because adopting something like Nero is like something that's going to go through my like, you know, chief security officer type of thing. Like this is going to go through our CIO or CSO. Whereas this GoLinks thing is something that like, you know, me and my one person who I work with, like we're both just irritated with these super long, ugly Google, Google Docs links that like, um, you know, like we can't find anything. It takes forever to find they, stuff. They, they, they have a free plan. Nero does. No, GoLinks. Oh, GoLinks does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I don't know what, at what point they, they do this, but I don't know why this is not more popular. This is like a, like a real problem. And then this also just got me thinking like, what else is like this? What what are the other problems that are like these? Like I call them paper cut companies. So, um, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts. So like, what's a thing that's irritating, but you do it so often that it's just a constant paper cut. That's just annoys you. Screenshots is another one that like sharing screenshots was one that was a big paper cut. Uh, I invested in this company called bubbles that tries to make that better. Loom is makes it that better. I remember um, bubbles. Is it working? Uh, I don't know. I haven't caught up with them in a little while. I know it was working initially. They raised a bunch of money uh, from that, but I feel like it hasn't taken over like, you know, the loom market yet, but maybe it's going into a different market. I'm not. Dude, the not screen, sure. the, the screenshot one's a good idea. Also the copy and paste, the copy and paste. I've been thinking for years, how can I optimize a copy better and clipboard? Paste? Yes. A better clipboard. I've been thinking about that for a long time. Um, it's been, that's always an interesting thing to me is, is, is the clipboard. That, that's really intriguing. Yeah. But the, the, the problem with these types of products is you have to truly be inventive. I don't particularly have that muscle to like be that creative. So people who invent things like this or like even like um, what's that guy named Howie who's got the huge company? Uh, Airtable. Airtable. Uh, creating something like Airtable, which is basically kind of like Excel, but different and better. Or even creating like a notion. I don't like these people kind of are geniuses who can like. <laughs> come up with like these weird product features and like they just know that like if you hover your mouse over this it needs like that they're so complicated they're so complicated it's pretty amazing yeah they um they're big on details and i'll tell you the the best thing i heard about details like this i'm I'm not detail oriented like if if this camera showed my desk you would see like yeah i'm obviously not organized or detail oriented like everything is sloppy even my camera right now is actually slightly crooked but i just don't care I just don't care about details and pretty much anything I do. So that's why and, you're talking with like your neck a little. Crazy. Yeah. That's why I like normal. often do this. <laughs> <laughs> I end every podcast with a crick. Um, but you know, like I'm not a sweat the details person, but I remember the first time I used Slack, I used Slack really early on. It was like in beta. I should have invested in it. I just wasn't an investor back then. I didn't think about it that way, but I used it. And I remember the first thing, uh, one thing I did was I, I was telling our designer, Hey, uh, yeah, here's the color for like our logo or whatever. Uh, or they sent it to me. And they just sent the hex code. So like, you know, hex, you know, like pound CFFR, you know, 373. And it just it turned it into a small, tiny color swatch. And I remember thinking, why the fuck did they do that? Like, what level of care went into caring that the hex code would just auto format with a little swatch next to it? That's what I mean. Nobody would do that. Unless you were like a real product designer who sweat the details, who used this product all the time and just dedicated yourself to like anytime you could just scratch your own itch and irritate, you know, like remove one paper cut from your own user experience, you're going to do it. And so this is why also working on your own products, working on products that you want to be the user of helps because you'll get so annoyed at the paper cuts, you'll just get rid of them yourself. All right. Um, let me give you an example of another one. So I'm only bringing this up because of colors. So I've told you about this 
company called WGSN. They make ninety million dollars a year, and they t- it's a bl- it's like an info product all about colors. I, I don't want to talk about that, but so Ben, go to so it's called coolers.co, C-O-O-L, like cool, O-R-S.co, coolers.co. So basically, whenever I'm creating a new product or a new website, you have mm. to pick like a good color scheme. Oh, and like, this is typ- great. This is badass, great. dude. It's so good. <laughs> so basically, let's say that like, for me, mostly I'm just like a black and white guy. I want the text to be black. I want the background to be white. But then you still need like some radiant of gray. And then you want the links to be some like, gradient of yeah, red What goes good with that what goes good with yes. this color of blue and so what you could do is look at the very bottom where it says um when you see the lock button when you see so basically it shows you five colors you can randomly select one or you could tell it which one you want and let's say you like the blue you click lock on that and then it shows you four more that fit that then you click lock on the next one and it shows you three more that fit that is this golden is this website amazing or what Dude, that's amazing that is so good and <laughs> i love when that. i i've been going this for years and years and years at first, it started out just like this tiny little project. Now it gets like five million monthly uniques, according to Similar Web, and it's got a pro version. It's got all these amazing versions. So yeah, it gets five million monthly uh, monthly uniques. It's got a Figma plugin, a Chrome extension. It's got all this amazing stuff, and they have a pro version that I actually don't know what you get with the pro version. But how neat is this? This is a paper cut problem that actually I bet has turned into a business that makes many, many, many millions of dollars a year. And this is the type of company that you could own for like 30 years and it probably would make pretty consistent seven figure profit every single year. Yeah. How does this one make money? Does it uh, charge for anything? So they do a couple things. If you look on the top, you'll notice that they have a Squarespace ad. So they ha- it has ads and then they, they have a pro version. So it's only it's billed $36 a year, which is stupid. And you get uh, lots of different um, features. Um, but I would charge like way more because you already know that the, this company has like a, like a, basically what you would do is you, if I own this, I log on, I look at all the email addresses I've ever collect. I do like a control find Uber, Adobe, whatever, like companies that have bought it. And I go and upsell them on some like crazy high thing. Right. <laughs> Can I tell you, um, the philosophy, again, I'm not detail-oriented, but here's a philosophy I heard that I was like, oh, this explains why some things, when I once I'm some products, some experiences, some hotels, when I go into them, I'm like, this just feels good. What's going on here? I can't even put my finger on what feels good about it. I was talking to Scott Harrison. He's the founder of Charity Water. And Charity Water puts on dope events. Everything they do is dope. So like, I think when he was starting it, he heard some quote that was like, um, isn't it sad that charity is marketed with less um less like um less design and style than um you know the the 73rd uh, brand of toothpaste and it's like yeah it's like true it's like you know like a crest or like you know whatever right aqua aqua whatever it's called aqua fresh you know like the they, they put more design and marketing and energy into like how that looks and feels and the colors and the the typeface and all that than a charity that saving children would put into their brand. So he decided early on, all right, I'm going to build an Epic charity brand because I think it's going to matter. I think people are going to donate more if we come across, if we do better marketing, like we can't just like say that that's only for rich companies and we're this poor nonprofit that always has to look crappy. And so he does, he, he is a photographer. So he takes epic photos. They put on Epic events. So at their events, if you ever go to one of their events, it just flows. It's just nice. Like every, well, everything like just a club feels promoter, good. Right. He was a former club promoter. So he gets it. And he goes, my, he, I go, I go, dude, what, 
what is it about your events? I was like, because you have the big spectacle. Like at any event, like every time he does an event, he tries to up it from the year before. So there's always like this like spectacle where it's like there's 10,000 screens and on every screen is one person from one village that we are going to fund tonight. It's like, okay, that's the spectacle. And that's always cool. But I was like, dude, it's the other stuff that like, I don't know why it just feels different. What is it? He goes, my wife, Victoria, she's the brains behind this. She has a phrase for this. She goes, um, all the magic is in the moments between the moments. I go, what? She goes, it's the moments between the moments. And I was like, what does that mean? And he goes, yeah, we have the big spectacle. We have the screens. We have the thing when we hit our donation goal. There's going to be the big like fireworks or whatever for doing the moment. That's the moment. So the difference between us and everybody else is that we also care about the moments between the moments. What's it going to be like in between those moments? Everybody else only puts their energy to those. We focus on the moments between the moments. And I just started, I was like, I still don't really understand how to use this, but it became this like kind of mantra. So anytime I really want to pull something off, like today's Valentine's Day, I'm trying to pull something off. It's like, uh, what are the moments between the moments that I could just level up here? Because that's where to the other person, they're like, oh, you didn't have to do that. Like this that's took good. extra care to like, to think about, you know, the, the walkway between the two rooms and not just what's in the two rooms. Now that I'm a hotelier, I'm reading the biography <laughs> of the guy who started the four seasons. And he talks about, he started it in the sixties and he was like, before then, like people didn't necessarily have like the fanciest mattresses. So we went and just got the best mattresses that money could buy. Or like, you couldn't get your um, shoes cleaned at a hotel. And so we just hired a guy to clean shoes or right. um, the showers weren't necessarily good. So our showers were just almost as good as every other shower, but we just got the best shower heads. And he was like, oh, we just focused on all these really tiny things. And it added up and made it amazing. Right. Do, do you uh, have you read this? The, the main guy for hospitality, there's like the Shake Shack guy. I think he's written one. Danny like, Meyer. His book's called he, Setting the Table. Yeah, I read it. It's awesome. Right. And then there's uh, that guy, Chip. You know this guy, Chip? Have you heard of this guy? Chip uh, Conley. Yeah, he yeah. had a hotel business. Is it called Hotel Zephyr? I think no. so. It's Phoenix. like a boutique. It's like, well, no, I think that's one of his hotel. That's like the specific hotel. His group is called something else. Uh, he has a couple, like a bunch of boutique hotels. That I guess he's Chip Conley. For. Yeah. And yeah, he, was, he like, worked at Airbnb board. for a long time. Right, that's right. I think he was like the advisor, key advisor, special advisor to like the founders of Airbnb. So in... Um, in Masters of Scale, did you ever listen to the Masters of Scale episode about Airbnb, the, about the five-star experience thing? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Tell it. So, so you should do this for your Airbnb. So I, I, do this for, I do this for all my startups. I'll do this at one point in time for everybody. It's, a, it's an amazing framework. So founder of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, goes on, and they were talking about, like, okay, what, makes Air, what made Airbnb special? He goes, okay, well, we do this exercise. I think he calls it the 12-star experience. So he goes, all right. Um, he sat down with the team. He goes, okay. Uh, a guest is going to stay at an Airbnb, right? That's our product. Our product is actually not the website where you book the thing. It's the experience you have when you go to the place. We all agree on that. Everyone's like, yeah, we all agree on that. Okay, cool. So uh, what's a one-star experience with the Airbnb? It's like, oh, I, I booked the place and my card gets charged twice for no reason. Now I got to go contact support. And then I never get a message from the guy. So I'm uncertain when I get there about how I'm going to get in. Um, and then I get there and it looks nothing like the photos and there's cockroaches everywhere. And the bed is, you know, the sheets are dirty, whatever. That's a one star experience. Okay, cool. What's a three star experience. So then they, they define a three star experience. It's like all those little moments, but they're a little bit better. And he's like, all right, what's a five star experience. And this is where the team, the first time they do this exercise, the team's like, all right, five star experience is like, you know, um, super easy to book on the website. Um, you get there and the keys are in the lockbox and it just opens up and, uh, 
you know, it looks just like the photos and you're feeling good. And the the host leaves you kind of like a bottle of wine on the table or like, you know, some, some mint, a chocolate on your pillow. Let's put it that way. He's like, okay, great. That's a five-star experience. Everyone's like, yeah, that's five-star experience. They're ready to like leave the meeting. Great. We, we defined it. He goes, cool. What's a six-star experience? And they're like, oh, fuck, Brian. What, what do you want us to say? They're like, okay, instead of mint, you know, chocolate on, on your pillow, there's a bottle of wine. He's like, all right, what's a seven-star experience? And they're like, all right, seven-star experience, you know, they pick me up from the airport. There's a, they're standing there with a name on my name on the sign, and they, I don't have to go figure out the Uber in the city. They drive me home, and then they, you know, on the way out, they hand me, you know, um, a little cheat sheet of cool stuff in the neighborhood that I can go check out. And he, like, keeps pushing the envelope. He's like, what's a 12-star experience? And he forces them to think through what the most magical experience could be using their product. And he's like, okay, cool. Now we know what's possible. Now we know in the extreme scenario, like we took the ceiling from here, we blew the roof off and now we can go here, right? We took the knob, we turned it to 10 and then we said, no, we want the volume to go higher. And now we can take the volume up to 15. And sure, and we're not going to be able to deliver that every time. But if we hadn't even thought about it, like we couldn't ever dream of translating any element of that into our uh, into our experience. And at the company, there was a time pre-COVID when when they didn't have, you know, what the when COVID happened, like things change and like we got to survive just like most businesses. But prior to that, for a long time, Brian had been tinkering with building an airline. And right. the reason being is the 12 star experience is basically, well, like. What if we flew you there and, you know, the moment right. you booked, we picked you up and you were on our flight and, we, you know, a, a perfect 12 star would be like, it's your own plane, this and that. Yep. And they were even tinkering with either opening an airline or offering flights. Right. And that and that's an example that that that, that example didn't come to fruition because a bunch of stuff. But that's an example of like, man, that actually could have been reality from that exercise. But, but other things did. So, for example, the Airbnb, uh, what was called experiences or whatever. Experiences. Where, where, okay, you get to the city. Now what? Well, my stay is not just the house I'm in. It's what I do outside of the house. Well, cool. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could take you on a wine tasting thing? That could just be part of what was already booked for you. It just turned out to be amazing. It's like a local person guiding you through this thing. Not just this uh, corporate, you know, um, you know, tour bus, but like somebody who really actually like works at the winery who just does this in their spare time. Wouldn't that be an amazing experience? And that actually became a part of the product. And, uh, you know, what if the photos weren't so crummy, right? So like all these things, they, they, they like put effort into doing them. To me, that's how you translate the moments between the moments yeah. thing into real life. So whenever I do this with our companies, it's like, cool. So what would be a great experience? Oh, you get the product and it works. Okay. What's a, what's a six star experience? Well, the packaging, actually our packaging kind of is weird. It's like hard to open. It'd be awesome if this just was easy to open. I didn't have to go get the scissors and fumble with this. Oh yeah. Okay. What else? Well, it'd be cool if inside every package, they also was this other little thing. That would be awesome, right? And then, like, what if the founder followed up with, like, you know, like, hey, how was it two days later? And they, you know, they actually cared what I thought. Okay, what what else? And so this, like, this exercise of take your team through one star, three star, five star, seven star, nine star, 12 star experience is, like, a, it works in any business, not just hospitality. Damn, yeah. I, I remember hearing this story years ago. I think this he did this in like 2014 or 15, and it's always stuck with me. Yeah. It's um, can, let me tell you about a company that I think I think I could I could start one of these, and I think I could I could knock it out the park. So there's this company that I, I've always talked about. Well, actually, no. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. I want to tell you about one other thing. There's this guy named Sam Ovens. Do you know Sam Ovens? Sam Ovens? Uh, is yeah. this the uh, very like slick-backed hair guy uh, yeah 
what's his yeah. thing? Consulting.com? So he, all about? right. So this guy named Sam Ovens, he rubbed me the wrong way for a long time. And looking back, I think I was actually wrong. And he seemed like an all right guy. So he had this website called consulting.com, which if I had to put it at its worst, it was basically a course that was like $2,000 to $10,000 that taught you how to start a business. At best, it's like, it, like it's an accelerator. And the reality is it just like is a way to like, it's like a community and a course on starting a company. And he scaled it to like 30 million in revenue. And it was just him and he hired all these people and built this office in New York. And he was posting on social that they're doing 50 or 60 million in revenue. And then he, he vanished. And he had a YouTube video come out today that says, and he, and he just says, I'm back. He's like, for the past two years, I hated life. We scaled too quickly. And so we were spending like 50K a day on Facebook ads and we weren't even making that much profit. So I decided to change everything. And over the last two years, we've crushed it. He goes, for example, in January, uh, this course, he goes, we got rid of like, there was three courses. Now we only sell two or one. And last month in January, we made $800,000 in revenue and our expenses, which includes payroll and paid ads was $60,000. And so basically this guy, and, and then he launched this new company called School, which is basically like a Facebook groups alternative because when he was launching courses, he was like, these stink. So that is a different story. That's actually cool. But this course business this guy has now, basically, let's just times it by 10. So $8 million in revenue with $600,000 in expenses. Is that nutty or what? Is that crazy? Yeah, but it depends. Is that sustainable? And also, is that going to grow? So for example... I no, say, I don't think it's going to grow, but I think it's going to be sustainable. When I did the like all access pass, it was like I was making whatever 50K a month off of the newsletter, a paid newsletter, making 50K a month. What were my expenses? It was like, you know, $300 a month for convert kit, uh, you know, like a VA for $500 a month, whatever. So it looked nutty, but like that's because I had an audience. So I could just sell into that. If I wanted to grow it, I would have had to like, you know, my expenses would have had to have gone way up. Right. You know, like, so it depends where. Yeah, maybe his ad spend is really low now. Is that because his ads are ultra efficient, or is it because he had a long, a big list that he no, sold into? No, they said that they don't they don't spend ads anymore. But previously, they had spent millions and uh, tens of millions of dollars of ads. So, so the website the definitely spend? already has yeah uh, traffic. Traffic, yeah. So yes, it's not so like I a talked to somebody who worked there um, pretty early on. So they, I was like, "Is this guy legit?" They go, "He's legit. He's good." Um, they're like, "He he lived in New Zealand or something like that. He's a digital yeah. marketer." Uh, then he has consulting.com, which is basically like a, they had a course, they had a consulting accelerator, and they're basically teaching people how to start their own business, their own consulting business. And uh, they said they told me at the time that there was like $10 million of free, free cash flow a year. And they said that um, there it was about 30 million or something in revenue. And he said like half of that, so like 15, 16 million was coming from one product, which was a two or $3,000 course about how to start your own consulting business. And then from there, they upsell you into the $5,000 course about how to create a course. <laughs> and then uh, once you get to $500,000 in consulting revenue, then you get to join a mastermind that will help you it's get like to a million dollars plus. And yeah. that'll cost you 25 or 50 grand or something like that. And so that was their, you know, that was their model. But, you know, half of it was coming from that kind of like entry level two to $3,000 course um, where they like kind of sell you, close you on the phone to like get you to buy the course, which is, yeah, like, I went through the funnel to like, so I got him to sell me online or to, to do the phone call. And I was like, I want to, I want to figure this out. Oh, it's and great. it's pretty good, man. And I gave the guy a hard time because he's just kind of weird. He just comes off serial kill. He kind of Patrick Bateman. He's kind of like the Patrick Bateman of our, of our friend, Jack Smith, like the American psycho version of our friend, Jack Smith. <laughs> and so he's like, just like a little 
off, but that's actually really incorrect of me to say because I don't. I think he's just an oddball, which is yeah, totally acceptable. I don't know the guy. <laughs> well, yeah, and I don't know him, and I think that my judgment is just totally wrong. I think he's an all right guy. You're like, and, I think it's uh, wrong because it's all based on his haircut. <laughs> no, I watched a lot of this guy's videos, and I was like, something is off here. And I, he was, he was aggressively selling. He was, it was the type of guy where he's selling like a private jet, uh, like a video on a private jet. Right. So right. that's not wrong, but it's 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 you know your cousins with wrong. Um, and so I think that that it was just kind of odd, but I thought that was interesting. I thought you get a kick out of that. All right, but the second thing, so go to board Google Boardroom Insiders. Okay. So this company was just bought the other day for twenty five million dollars, and it was bought by this company called Euro Money. And so basically, what it does is Boardroom Insiders provides executives with help on uh, it, it helps them with their sales, marketing, and recruiting teams. Uh, if your audience is a, a C suite executive. Basically, it's just a database that lists all the executives you can think of. And for a bunch of big, powerful ones, it has in-depth profiles on them. And it helps you map out who they know. And um, hmm. uh, you can like follow an executive and it can like, tell you, like, oh, this person recently changed jobs. And they claim that none of their information comes from scraping. I don't buy that, but it could be true. And they also they say that... So, so let's just assume that's not true, and then we'll assume it is true in a second... But assuming that's not true, that means they get all of their data from basically these, these editors who are just scraping the web, not scraping, but like monitoring the web and manually creating this database of tens of thousands of executives and then selling it for tens of thousands of dollars. And I think that's pretty amazing. And I think that's interesting because there's this company called PitchBook that did something similar to this. And what PitchBook did, they PitchBook is owned by a publicly traded company. They do like $200 million in revenue, which means they're probably worth well over a billion at this point. And what they did was they hired these huge teams of people in the Philippines, and they would basically call VCs and ask them if they invested in this particular company. And then they would create a list of like, all right, here's we we triangulated this to this company raised this much money at this valuation from these five people. These five people also invested in these things, these things, these things. These 18 companies are growing at this rate based off their headcount growth on LinkedIn. Right. These fascinating databases. Is this is this interesting? Yeah, I always like kind of I kind of admire a product like this. Uh, I put this into beautiful businesses category. Why? Because um, what's the product? The product is data. Uh, you sell it digitally. You collect it through either automated scraping or outsourced, you know, kind of phone phone sales scripts. You get a, every every bit of data you add in makes your whole data set more valuable. And um, and you could sell this thing for a very high price because the people who need it, right? Like Boardroom Insiders, for example, who needs it? It's who, who needs access to the profiles of executives at companies. It's like, you know, executive recruiters. Um, they are willing to pay because they make a ton of money when they place a CMO at a company. It's executive sales or executive marketing. And so it's like people who are who have big budgets, who spend a lot of money and they, they don't have the time to, like, go figure this out themselves. They'll, they'd rather click a button and get the get the list. And so. Um, so, yeah, while I don't think these are the most fun and exciting business to build or like not like that good for the world you know uh i don't like admire them for those I think reasons they can be if you if you cared about it i think if i think there's a and there's not like i am fairly passionate about the pitch book version crunch base is also a cool version that i'm like oh that's actually pretty sick i think there's a right. world where it could be cooler yeah yeah maybe it does look like they have kind of like a lot of stuff on the person so it's like you know, I'm I'm on one. So this is Doug Hume. He's the head of retail business. They have like sample profiles on their site. 
He's the head of retail business at Amazon. Okay. Personal interests are golf and Greek letter organizations. Rats. I don't know. I don't know what that's about. And then it's like, here's the summary. He did this. Before that, he was working on this. Before that, he was working on this. It's like a resume. <laughs> Doug just... likes golf and boofing. Let's go hire him. <laughs> and then it was like, hey, he was born in South Korea, grew up in Kentucky. It's like, yeah, you want if you want to build rapport real quick, it's like, here's his wife's name. <laughs> you know, he, hey, how's the wife? Uh, how's how was young, young Nim? Uh, you know, like, <laughs> how's, uh, you know, what, here's what he's focused on. Or he, he's bullish on retail business because on the Q3 earnings call, they said we're bullish on retail business. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> some of this is kind of like, you know, who's typing this in here? Uh, but some of this could be useful. I, I could see why this. Have is you seen uh, on The Office, Michael takes notes on all of his clients and he's trying to get, trying to teach Green Dwight means- how to do it. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, and Dwight gets to know it. He goes, hello, Mr. Smith. How is um, Greg, 14-year-old homosexual son? Uh, how is your gay son? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, it was written in green. He's like, it was on green. He's like, and Michael, it comes to Michael, he's like, Green means go. I said, do not go there. <laughs> <laughs> that's what this reminds me of. Oh my god, that's great. <laughs> um, yeah. So, all right. So this is this is a cool little website. That's it. Can I tell you something uh, interesting? I saw so um, the one the point oh one percent rule. So Nathan Barry came on the pod. And he was cool. So he's the, the founder of ConvertKit. He came on. He was telling us about some blog posts that either he's written or that others have written that he liked. So I went back and I read one of them. And I saw this thing called the 0.01% rule. Have you seen this? No. Okay. So I'm going to But he's pretty up, amazing. I'm going to pull up this. Uh, where's the blog? 0.01% rule wealth. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Um, okay. I'm not going to be able to find it real quick here, but I'll, I'll put the link in. Ben, if you could find it or, or search Nathan Barry. Wealth ladder 0.01%. So basically, the way the guy's thinking, he, he's like, he's like, you know, um, he's like, he talks about price sensitivity. And he's sort of like, you know, as you get more rich, you, um, you know, the way you think about money should change, right? This is like when I came to your house and you had like CVS receipts in the glove compartment because right? you were like saving them for like the $3 thing. And you're like, hell yeah. Uh, and I was like, dude, you just sold your company for like many, many millions of dollars. Uh, what are you doing with these CVS receipts? You're like, ah, I just like to do it. It's a habit. And so this guy talks about like at the richer you get, um, you should sort of, he's like, he's like, this works for when you sell something to somebody or yourself as you get to that level, basically below 0.01% of your net worth. So that's, you take your net worth and you multiply it by 0.000 whatever, you know, one. So it's like, uh, 0.01% of your net worth. So let's say you're worth, um, Let's do 100 million. So 100 million. What is it times what? Use five, 5 million, right? Let's use a little bit more of an approachable number here. So um, so that would be $500. For If you have $5 million in net worth, $500 is the threshold below which you don't really feel it. You don't really care or feel it. You get become a little bit price insensitive below that point. So that might be like, you know, opting for the ni- you know the nicer hotel or like you just really don't give a shit. You can just ball out at a restaurant. You really don't care. Uh, and so he draws this little curve and he's like at, um, at the first level of wealth, it's like, uh, he calls it like level zero, level one of wealth, where it's like, you know, your 0.01 is like a hundred dollars or, or less than a hundred dollars at that point. Well, Ten, a million dollars. Yeah. A million dollars would be a hundred bucks. Yeah. So he's like, you know, at that point, like, you know, if you're at the grocery store and something costs an extra dollar, like you care, you don't want to buy the eggs that cost a dollar 99 more. You care. He's like, then the next level, the next jump up is you're like, well, I don't care at like, 
you know, it's he, the, the way he draws the chart. It's like, what are restaurant prices? Then the next one is like, what are vacation prices? It's like, you don't even really care about how much your vacations cost. The next one is like, you, you know, you could fly first class. And then the, the final one is like, you know, or the next one is like, you, you can buy a crazy house and you, you know, you don't really get, you're not really feeling uh, house prices as much. And then the final one is like, you know, what are prices anyways? Like, you know, this is when you're worth over a hundred million dollars. Like at that point, most things don't cost anything to you. And um, you're pretty insensitive to the cost of it. So I'm just sort of summarizing the idea, the, the exact, you know, you can quibble about what you should or shouldn't care about. But I thought it was kind of this interesting number. And I, the reason I bring it up is very few people that I know are like properly price sensitive. So there's a lot of people I know, like my dad, who no matter how wealthy they've got, like the sort of like the trauma of not having money is so deeply ingrained in his body that like, you know, Starbucks, he's just like, he's like pissed off when they charge. Even if he buys the coffee, it like he's angry at the price. And he's like, oh my God, $4.99. Like I could make this for so much less. And they're like, sir, you're welcome to do that. And he's like, oh, like what's going on? And, you know, he's anchored to prices from like the 80s when like, you know, that's why like he thought movie tickets should cost X. And also, you know, it just like hurts him to spend more than some amount regardless of what's in his bank account. And so he's kind of on one side of the spectrum, too cheap. And then there's the other side of the spectrum, which is we're more where I am, where it's like, dude, you should really kind of like pay attention to this. You're, you're kind of spending like pretty crazy and, uh, you know, completely price insensitive is on the other side. And then there's like whatever the sweet spot is. And then school, they don't really teach you how to, how to like gauge that or what, what those kind of like, what even should be a good number for this? What should I spend on things? So you you, you don't get nervous? Like I, I I freak out a little because as an entrepreneur, like some years I just like knock it out the park and make so much money. Other years I make nothing. Uh, I mean, hopefully I don't think nothing will ever happen again. But like there's times you don't get nervous about running out. No, actually, like two months ago, I was like, oh, my God, I have like no cash left. No cash on hand left. I was just, I was investing in everything I saw. I was putting money into startups, into crypto, into stuff. I was Then I was spending a bunch, like my payroll expanded. And I was like, oh my God, I have like so little cash in How that. Much ca- I it, felt that way too. It and was under, I, yeah, I had 60 grand in cash and I was like, I feel low. Yeah, I think it was like 38,000 was in my like whatever Wells Fargo checking account. And I was like, where'd all the money go? This was like, well, and I was like, well, yeah, I guess. And I looked at the like out, outgoing thing and it was like, it's not that my spending had gone up. I was really just investing a lot of money. But I was like, wow, I should, uh, I need to manage cash for most of the time for me. It's like, oh, I need to send my invoices for like things, you know, like I was like, all right, I'm going to teach a course and I'm going to invoice, you know, for the podcast. And I'm going to like do the things that bring in like cash today versus most of the things I invest my money into are like long-term illiquid things yeah, or like my, my own businesses. Right. Like, uh, maybe I should take a withdrawal out of my business and like put money in my bank account. And so, so, you know, it was just like a reminder of that. But no, I, I don't really get too worried about that. Um, and maybe, you know, again, I think I'm too far on the dial of like willing to spend on whatever. Ramit Sethi, this is pretty much what his entire, uh, not course, but his entire image and content is about, which is like, he's got this podcast where two people, couples argue like we have, we're worth $3 million and he got into a fight with me because I spent $80 on this silly right. thing. And Ramit's all about that. It's, I have, I'm more like your father than I am like you. Like, and I think it's just rooted. It's, it's rooted in like trauma, like just fear. Uh, I've right. got the same thing where it's just like, a, it's like, a, it bothers me so much. <laughs> like for example, 
um, Cometeer coffee. Um, I, they sent me some for free. It's so good. But it's $1.50 per cup. And compare that to like your bean coffee. I'm like, $1.50? Sometimes I don't even drink the whole thing. And so like I've been really struggling with like, is that worth it? Is this worth it? Or the backsplash on my sink in my kitchen. We need to replace it. And it's $800. And I've been fretting over it for over a year now. I'm like, ugh, $800 to replace that? I just can't. So even though it will add value to the home and also make me happier, I understand why your dad thinks that way. It's really, it's real. I think it's challenging when you're, it's like, it's like, you know, it's proper trauma, I think, of like, you felt one way for years and now you suddenly like things are different. Yeah. Maybe we actually need money therapy, uh, money therapy specifically. I think that's actually a good idea here. So therapy is this broad thing that has like a bunch of associations with it. And mostly is like stigmas and blah, blah, blah. I think somebody needs to spin off and remit. sounds like he's kind of doing this, which is money therapy is a great idea. Financial therapy. Um, and it's like, yeah, I have a money coach or, you know, you probably need to switching therapy to coach is the, is the hack to like, Oh, I'm I'm focusing on performance and not like uh you know fixing a a, pro, a broken part of me, uh, but so in, I, in reality it's that. I tried finding people like this, and when I met them, I was like, "Look, we're just not, getting to know each way, other." Not a financial advisor, different thing. No, I know. I thought when I I, go, I would go to therapy for a lot, and I would and I would go when I whenever I was trying out a new therapist, I'd be like, "So I'm not gonna like I'm not trying to sound like a douche or big headed, but like." I'm a high high achiever. Like I want to like conquer the world and like do cool shit. And so I'm not want to talk like this is this is the 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 place that I'm coming from. Like I'm I'm high octane, baby. Can can we can we make this happen? Do you have the tools necessary or no? Or do you like specialize just in like you know like traditional? So wait, what what were you really trying to tell her? You were trying to tell her that my problems are not like I'm not broken. I'm trying to like just achieve a higher level of success. Or were you trying to tell no, her, like, it's I'm an A player, are you broken. an A player therapist? Or is that what you were trying to ask her? What were you trying to ask her? No, the blunt way to explain it is I've got rich, I'm, I'm complaining about rich some problems. rich people problems. Okay, got it. And, like, I'm just, like, mostly right. just insecure about certain things, and I want to, like, use that to, like, conquer the world. Right. I'm not verified I'm compl- on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and, like, I'm going to complain about stuff that sounds super weak because like on outside, like everything's going great, but I need you to like empathize that like I'm trying to like go places and I don't need you to tell me that like, well, you made a million dollars that last year. Isn't that good enough? Like, no, dog, that's not like I need you to understand like, what, what, like what's, what's at stake here? You know what I mean? And Sam, what is at stake here? That's like you're better. I'm going to be your money therapist. But you know what I mean? Like, totally. And so like I would meet people and I'm like. Oh, you've only worked with like a certain type of person. You have like, I don't think you understand. I don't think you'll be able to help me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I know what you mean. It's the reason Tony Robbins gets paid a million dollars plus per c- client. Cause it's like his clients are Serena Williams and Ray Dalio and you know, or whoever. And you know, he's Paul like Tudor crazy Jones rich. Yeah. And he himself is successful and his other clients are, you know, objectively very successful, but everybody, everybody, um, you know, can improve the, you know, the little voice in their head. Dude, while we're on the uh, random, random, random topics, did you watch the Tinder Swindler? No, but I saw your picture with it. So what's the, what's the, like the, the. Okay. So you guys don't. Okay. So here's, here's what happened. It's, it's kind of an amazing thing. Um, there's a guy. So the document, it's a documentary about this guy who goes on Tinder and his Tinder profile looks like, uh, you know, he's kind of like a normalish looking guy, but he's like clearly living a cool lifestyle, like lots of travel, in different climates, 
kind of wearing very nice clothes. That's his profile. All right. So girls swipe right on him and they start chatting with him. And he, he basically, what he ended up doing was he ended up conning women out of money and it was like a Ponzi scheme. So what he would do is he would meet a woman on Tinder, take her out on a date, kind of wine and diner, make it look like he's this baller of a guy. And he, you know, is just like, like a prince out of a fairy tale. He just loves her, the average looking girl who's average job just from an average city. And then all of a sudden he's like, come on my private jet and come do this with me. And they go together and there she's like, oh my God, it's all happening. I am that princess that he picked and he cares for. And so he, he starts talking to him and sh- uh, his backstory is that he, um, his dad owns a diamond company and he's the son of a billionaire. And if you Google, you see that this guy's the son of a billionaire. So he kind of like had created this profile around that. And, um, and then, you know, sure enough, a month in, he's like, um, Hey, you know, like he's, he's like, Oh, you know, he sends a picture of his bodyguard. He's always with the bodyguard. He's like, my bodyguard got attacked. Oh my God. And she's like, Oh my God, is he okay? He's like, yeah, but you know, they're telling me I can't use my credit cards anymore because they're tracking my location. You know, like these are our enemies for our company. The diamond business is a ruthless business. And he's like, uh, can I borrow your credit card for the time being while I, uh, you know, because I can't use mine yet. And she's like, uh, okay. And he's like, cool. Just make sure you get your limits raised. Cause like I have business meetings Ugh. and all this stuff. So these women end up going like 150, $200,000 in debt as he Ugh. racks up credit card debt. Then he's like, Hey, go get a quick loan and send me the money. I need it because you know my enemies are after me. And he's like, my enemies are after me. And so you, the documentaries, the first half of the documentaries, these women talk about how they fell in love. And the second half is like the, how they got conned basically. And he's like a Ponzi scheme. So he's, well, he'd fall in love with one woman or he'd get them to fall in love with him, get them to start giving him money and credit cards. He'd be using that to wine and dine the next woman. And then he would be doing this with multiple women at once, telling them all the same things. And then, he was living this like extravagant lifestyle on all these women's dime. And, um, and then, you know, so that's, that, okay, that's the core of the movie. Quick reaction to that. And then I'm gonna tell you some other stuff. Well, what happened to him? So how does this end? It ends with, he gets exposed. So the women are like, Oh my God, you know, they, they go to the credit card company. They're like, look, I have to be honest. Like my kind of boyfriend, you know, or I don't know what's going on. This is the guy he's tricking me. And like, they sh- he's there. Like, Can we see a picture of the guy? And he, sh- she shows a picture on her phone and then the two like agents from like Amex or whatever, just look at each other. Like it's him. And then the, she's like, what? It's like, we've been after this guy for years. Uh, he does this with tons of women. They're like, there's other women he's doing this too. And so it's like, they feel cheated on plus conned. And, um, and so he, but technically what happens is, is he breaking the law? He's not breaking the law. They are giving him money. They're sending him money willingly. And they are, um, you know, they're giving him their credit card and they're calling the credit card company and saying, no, no, it's me. Can you please raise my limits? Yes, I'm traveling. I'm in, I'm right. in the, I'm in a visa right now. And so they're like, uh, you know, you're in a kind of a sticky spot. You can't really say he stole it. You clearly gave it to him. Uh, right. in fact, you kind of committed fraud, but like, well, whatever, we'll leave that aside. But like, yeah, you do owe this money. Like this is not, um, this is not, you know, a stolen credit card. And so anyways, how much he did he get? He ends up getting a 15 month sentence for not even for this, it's for like something else that he did, like associated with this. Um, he serves five months, gets off free. He's out there living. He's got a new model girlfriend. He lives somewhere else. Um, the girls kind of like exposed him in the press because they were like, okay, look, law enforcement's not doing anything or it's going to take too long. He's going to keep doing this in the meantime. Let's so they, up. they go to the Norwegian press where they're from and they, they, they kind of like expose it. The Netflix turns it into a documentary 
And uh, and so the guy's still out there. And one of the things in the movie is he goes to a plastic surgeon and he's like, I want my eyes, cheekbones, chin, mouth, all restructured. And the guy's like, I'm not going to do this. Only a criminal would want this surgery. And, <laughs> and so he's like trying to change his face so he could keep it going, but he can't change his face. And now he's like, you know, kind of like public enemy number one. But a lot of people who watch this are like, dude, these girls are stupid. You, yeah, you were just with him for the money and then he conned you for the money. You got, you got what you deserve. So the girls are getting a ton of flack for it, which oh, is that's really crazy. Stupid. That's 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 dumb. But I, I was mean, just thinking, what they, a waste they, they, of talent it, by this guy. Yeah, like, that's pretty amazing. All it's this like, energy. It's like, a, it's like a, you know what's funny is like Leonardo DiCaprio played the same character in Catch Me If, if You Can, and it was awesome. Yeah, he's became and, like a hero. But when I see this guy, I want to punch him in the face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, uh, that was the problem. It was a documentary <laughs> instead of a movie about the con man itself, where you sort of fall in love with this smooth guy. Um, yeah, if, if a different, if, a, if, if like a, a lovable, if like, if like Matt Damon played him, I would be all about it. <laughs> yeah, but, it's, it's uh, pretty yeah, you gotta watch the thing. It's super punchable face, this guy. Yeah, um, and the memes are just amazing uh, around. Well, I saw stuff. the meme with you with your face on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had somebody. I was like, "Hey, Photoshop my head onto uh, onto this photo <laughs> where it looks like I'm with the guy," and I just tweeted out like, "Oh, I'm with my sister's new boyfriend." Like, <laughs> is but, he American? No, this guy's Israeli. Um, Dude. Screw this guy, man. I, I, uh, I'm happy they made a documentary about him. How did he get all the... Uh, so he's in a private jet and a bunch of these pictures. How did he get that? Because he's using the previous woman's money to fund his, his lifestyle. So he would fly private. Yeah, yeah. So he's actually flying private. I don't know if all the time, but at least some of the time. And uh, it was just really wild. In fact, a lot of the numbers don't make sense. Like He must have been running this on like tons of women at once to fund this lifestyle. Because these like the jets and the stuff that he was doing... Like, okay, he conned this woman out of 80 grand, but 80 grand funds like one month of this lifestyle, you know, like that's not very long. So he must have had a lot of people at the same time or the doc documentary is a little inaccurate. I don't know. But how much money did he get? They said that he had conned women out of millions of dollars uh, over over time. Um, they didn't say exactly how much. They don't know, you know, how much of it was there. But but I, I just feel like he did this all wrong. Like if you're going to do all this effort. You got to be more intelligent, right? Like, okay. What could he have done? Um, could have just married rich. Could have just seemed rich, married rich, divorced, took half, right? Like that, that would have worked. Uh, way, way, you know, put more wood behind fewer arrows here. And he could have just gone <laughs> one very wealthy person if he really wanted to do this. That's my first critique of, of him. Uh, my second critique of him is, bro, all this money to just party? Partying's exhausting. Like he just wanted to fly private and go to these clubs and do table service. Like, you know, you couldn't pay me to do that. I don't, I don't gotta, even want to travel. You got to diversify your assets, dog. Yeah. You should have. You should have. Own, own some crypto. Like, buy yeah. something. Buy, buy a home. Do, do, do something with this money. You, you just blew all the money on overpriced, you know, like bottle service at the club. Like, wow. All right. That's critique number two. Um, number three. Go B2B, bro. Corporate swindling. Would have worked way better. So, you know, he could have been. Like you, you heard about the guy who just started sending invoices to Microsoft and Apple and stuff and just got paid like millions of dollars. Just no, sending bogus. He was just sending an invoice to accounts payable or whatever. And uh, and then they would just pay some of the invoices. <laughs> he was Did like, what he just do like like AP at Microsoft.com? Yeah, he, he was like, he's like, hey, you know, this is for the uh, blah, blah, blah. And like and then they went back and they were like, what the hell is this? Who is this vendor that we've paid one point one million dollars to this year? Like nobody knows who this is. is. That I don't think that's illegal either. Uh, I think it is because he was like, you know, uh, well, whatever. They were going back after him, 
you know, th- these companies have a lot of money. So that's the downside of going B2B. But I feel like there could have been a B2B way of doing this. Should have actually just started a diamond company. Could have made a lot more money. If you're this good at getting women's emotions tied up in your, your lifestyle, just actually sell the diamonds. <laughs> it would have worked. <laughs> <laughs> Use their money to fund a diamond company that actually could have worked. This guy needs to be needs to be in the Facebook ad manager instead of Tinder. Dude, that's I'm, my, and that's my critique of this guy. I'm looking at him now. The, all those these women who he scammed, they, like a lot of them look like models. Like he was killing it. Also, like you forgot the other option, which is like just marry one of these ladies if they're rich enough to, like if they're these beautiful women who can wire him 200k. Like I don't know, man, bro. Maybe got to keep her. Well, in this case, he's like he was telling him like go take like a kind of like a collateralized loan or a payday loan and like super high interest. Don't worry. He's like I'm gonna wire you money back in four days. And then he would like not wire them back. And then they'd be like, Hey, did you wire the money? He's like, Oh, sorry. They are like the bank was closed. Okay. And then he would like show them a statement. He'd be like, I, I sent it should arrive in a couple of days. She's so like, Hey, it hasn't arrived yet. What's going on? Like the interest is building up on this like flash loan. You had me take. He's like, Oh my God, let me call the bank. Another two days go by. He's like, called the bank. They said this thing got frozen. I gotta, I gotta deal with this. I'm so sorry here. Uh, you know, I'm going to send you one of my watches. In the meantime, you can just sell it. This watch is worth $100,000. Send them a fake watch. And you would just buy time doing that. It's like, these women didn't have the money. But, like, I think he could he could have totally gone for a richer woman and then been like, you know what, baby? Like, I love you. I'm not going to make you sign a prenup. You know me. I'm a billionaire. Uh, I come from this lineage. But I'm not. My dad says sign a prenup. I'm not going to do it. And then she would feel a little bit of pressure and be like, Okay, I guess I can't really ask him for a prenup anyways. This guy's richer than me. All right. I, I guess I also won't. That would have been a, a more effective con. If this guy were in jail, do you think he'd be popular or hated? I think popular, sadly. You think popular? I think I think popular. I could see this going either way, man. I could see this I could see this going either way. I think like Dude, would he the get swindler beat up? in prison? Would he like all right, so Bernie Madoff, I heard in prison was like a god, which I get. I get that. You know, like he could teach people how to like corner like the chocolate shit or the chocolate, uh, hot Cigarette chocolate market, market like yeah. in prison. Like he could like, you know, or he could like, you know, dominate the commissary and he could like teach you about markets. I get that. And also there was, it wasn't a violent crime. So no children or women would hurt. But this guy, is he, I would see this guy being unpopular. Uh, I don't know. That's a good he's, question. He's got kind of like a douchebag aura to him. So that's the problem. That's, that's where he's going to get in trouble. But, uh. Bro, the swindler, the swindler would do well in, in prison. This is if, a good documentary. Right. I guess I'll watch it. How many episodes was it? He's not in prison. He's out and about. He's he's living a nice life right now. Oh, screw this guy, man! And he sold a couple million dollars. Yeah, I think I, I think about I think this documentary is good punishment, though. That's fair. I'm okay with you not serving time, and you have this documentary well, about our, you. Our buddy Jack Butcher pointed something out that I was like, oh wait a minute, that's true. He's like, yo, Netflix is gonna make a lot of money off this documentary. Pay off these women's debts. They have like a GoFundMe going. It's like, yo, Netflix, you need to pay off this woman's two hundred thousand dollar debt. That's true. Uh, you you did well on this documentary. So that's the uh, that's the real call out here. Netflix, cancel Netflix if they don't pay off these women's you, debts. You, that's a no brainer. You don't think they're going to? The, well, the, nobody said anything. These women are doing interviews everywhere. There's a GoFundMe out there. I feel like if, I feel like they could have said. Or they're just, you know, swindling people. One good thing that, you know, we didn't make a lot of money off this, but Netflix actually generously did agree to pay off the debt, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. That I feel like that story should have come out if they did it. If they didn't, then fire your, either fire your PR person, Netflix, or pay off this, pay these debts. You have two choices. That's actually a great point. How many likes did that tweet get that Jack said? Uh, probably not that many, because now everyone's just looking at Jack for like NFT. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, all right. That's a good episode.